Gegenseitiger Respekt ist die Basis für ein gutes Gespräch. Im Netz ist das alles andere als selbstverständlich. Und woher zur Hölle willst du das wissen? So eine vorlotte Bitch wie dich sollte man an den Herd fesseln, dir dein Handy wegnehmen und... und wir feiern dich dafür, dass du dich als Frau nicht unterkriegen lässt. Keine Angst, du bist hier nicht allein. Wir alle entscheiden, ob wir das Netz dem Hass überlassen. Werde Teil der Telekom-Initiative gegen Hass im Netz und setze ein Zeichen. Telekom. On keeptalk.co.za On the app On DSTV Channel 885 And across the city on 567 AM Join the conversation. This is Cape Talk. Welcome back, 9.33 Friday, couple of clouds about, and after 9.30, we talk to the Naked Scientist. Dr. Chris Smith, lecturer at the University of Cambridge, joins us. He's the Naked Scientist. He's got the answer to all of those questions that keep you up uh, at night. Welcome, Dr. Chris Smith. Always good to have you. Morning, Clarence. How are you? I'm, I'm great, man. I, I, I really don't do well when there's war happening in the manner that it's happening at this moment in time. Uh, yeah, so... Um, Apart from that, I'm great. Thank you. I'm pleased to hear that. Yeah, I mean, it's been a good news week for science, though. A couple of interesting things that I, I kind of had come across my desk that make you sit up and go, yeah, this is going to make a big difference. And I think foremost among them, I was really gratified to talk to George Church this week. Now, he's a geneticist at Harvard University, and I spoke to him over a number of years, but I, I met him actually in 2019 when we were at a conference together in Paris and we discussed what was going to become this work. And they've published in the journal Nature this week the next step, which is they have been genetically editing small mini pigs to make them so they're much more compatible with humans so you can do organ transplants. And what they've done is to remove certain genes which code for markers on cell surfaces that would make these cells immediately be rejected by the human immune system. They've also removed a lot of what are called porcine endogenous retroviruses. There are viruses that lurk inside the DNA of the pig, which don't probably don't pose any threat, but they've removed them to be safe. And they've put back in some human genes which modify the immune system response a bit. And the results they've now got that they're publishing in this Nature paper are that they're putting these into non-human primates and they have one animal with a kidney transplant out to two years after this pig kidney is put in. And this means they're now approaching the FDA, the, the regulator in America, to start formal clinical trials as soon as possible in the United States. I think initially doing kidneys, but ultimately all the organs could be used because they're all the right size and they're all biocompatible in this way. So we are on the cusp now of, of getting sources of organs that could help the hundreds of thousands of people who are currently dying every year on waiting lists because they can't get donor organs. Isn't that amazing? That's a big yay. That's a big yay. I hear what you're celebrating. That's significant. Absolutely. I, I wanted to ask you as well, a big challenge, and we've just uh, come out of that conversation, uh, is, is water. Potable water in South Africa. 30% of our municipalities supply undrinkable water to residents, so they need to obviously boil, etc. Uh, do you know of any kind of uh, development on that particular front, in just, uh, just in terms of, of you know, turning water into drinkable kind of water? The problem is that with every person comes a carbon cost and a water cost. We all need space to live in, air to breathe, energy to cook food, to go about our 
acts of daily living and water. And water has a carbon footprint too. And the more of us there are, the more those demands go up. And we like to live in the nice places on Earth. Cape Town's a very beautiful place. And not surprisingly, there's lots of people who want to live there. And the number of people is going up, which means that the amount of resources the land has to provide is going up. And unsurprisingly, we're putting huge pressure on some parts of the world, which is where the people are. So people are having to think outside the box because what you can't keep doing is just sinking another borehole. Because when you dig down into the earth, what you're doing is extracting effectively fossil water. It's the water equivalent of fossil fuels. It's water locked away in underground aquifers, porous rocks and other storage structures underground. And that water has taken millions of years to accumulate there. And we are pulling it out at the rate of it will last literally decades and then it's gone. Because if you don't put the water back, then it doesn't replenish, at least not at the rate that we're trying to remove it. So people are then thinking, well, we, we need other ways of doing this. Now, there are some strategies that can be used because air is humid, except in very rare places on Earth. There is always some water in the air. And so people are now coming up with fairly, fairly ingenious strategies that can extract the traces of water from the air using various techniques and then turn them into potable water. And because it's being taken out of the air, the water's automatically a lot cleaner to start with. It hasn't been potentially contaminated with sewage and so on, because that's not in the air, hopefully. So yes, there, there are ways around this. But the problem all boils down to, excuse the pun, the fact that there are lots of people, and the more people there are, the more pressure we put on the environment. So part and parcel of solving these problems isn't just to think about the solution to a limited resource, it's to think about the cause of the problem and how we also mitigate that in the long run. Okay, I have a question for the naked scientist. Is it true that heating or cooking food in a microwave destroys all nutritional value in the food? Well, no, that's not true. Um, if you overcook something, then you may destroy certain heat-sensitive vitamins and minerals or other foodstuffs that's that's true but you could do that with any form of cooking if you boil vegetables people have done the experiments boiling your food you actually leach out a lot of the good stuff into the water that you do the cooking with and then if you don't turn that into gravy you throw it down the sink you throw away most of the nutrition whereas at least if you put the food in the microwave oven you effectively steam it because what's happening is you liberate steam and moisture inside the foodstuff itself which then goes on to cook other bits of the food nearby as well as the direct injection of the the microwave energy into the food if you if you superheat it obviously there will be a problem but no we we don't think that that cooking by microwave as long as you don't overheat the food is any worse than if you put that food into any other food cooking system and heat it to an equivalent temperature uh, a question that, that I have an interest in, uh, Dr. Smith, how far will a golf ball travel if it didn't have dimples on it? And does the amount of dimples on a golf ball make a difference how far it will travel? I have a vested interest in your answer. <laughs> What's your handicap? Golf. Oh, oh full stop. Okay. <laughs> the, the reason that the golf balls have the dimples is for precisely reasons of ball flight. Because when you project anything through the air a curved object like a ball will cause the air that's passing to stick to its surface because air naturally, any fluid naturally sticks to a curved surface. And that was an effect that was described by a guy called uh, Koanda. I think he was Croatian. Um, or he was at least from that uh, neck of the woods. And his insight was that a fluid flowing over a curved surface sticks to that curve. So when a ball goes through the air, at certain speeds, the fluid 
air will stick to the, the curved surface. And if the air is sticking to the curved surface, it will exert drag. Now, when the ball is going very, very fast, then the air can't stick and you get turbulent flow and you get less drag. But as the ball slows down and the air begins to stick, it then exerts this drag effect and that can cause the ball to be harder to control because it, the air being pulled onto the surface will pull on the ball and change the direction it goes in. When you put the dimples on the surface of the golf ball, they create an effect where you get more turbulence all over the ball surface with the effect that the air doesn't stick to the ball and therefore it does go further because I think it remains in turbulent flight regime for longer than it otherwise would and therefore the, the dimples do make the ball go further and because it's going faster for longer it's probably going to go straighter. Okay, and I just wish they'd invent obedient balls. That's the solution to my golfing problem. Uh, then there's a message in about desalination. Now, desalination has been mooted as a solution to future water crises, uh, but cost of manufacturing has been one of, one of the issues. Are we going to be desalinating? Are we going to be looking to the sea to sort out our water woes in the future? Well, that's a good point to, to raise that and desal is one source the problem is that prizing water away from the salt particles that want to hang onto the water very very hard takes enormous energy and so when you when you try and make water i think in the i was in saudi arabia in jeddah a few years back and they were saying to me that when you work out how much the water ends up costing because of the amount of oil that you effectively need to burn in carbon cost to create the energy in order to liberate the water from the salt, it's absolutely huge. It's m monumentally expensive. So then you say, well, can I get the energy more sustainably? And so now we're into a, an era where we do have better solar performance, so possibly wind. Yes, we're entering into a situation where we may have sufficient energy in order to do this in a more sustainable way. The problem is that you can only do this during the day if you're going to use sun. If you're using wind, maybe get that at night. But the other way of doing it is with things like nuclear energy, where you can use the electricity from nuclear to do desal. But you wouldn't want to use traditional ways of generating electricity because the amount of energy is so high that the carbon footprint of the water becomes preclusive. Okay, so um, question in, why is it that breastfed babies are less likely to develop obesity in adulthood? Well, the claim goes that when you breastfeed a baby, that apart from being at the right temperature, nice and sterile and nutritionally balanced for the baby in terms of the right combination of micronutrients. The other thing that breast milk is provided in is limited supply. A baby gets about the right amount to provide it with the needs it, it has when it wants them. And the breast milk also selects for the right microbes to live in the intestines. There's, there's quite good evidence that because of the non-nutritional components of breast milk, there are antibodies in there, there are other things that affect the growth of microbes, breastfeeding has quite a strong patterning effect on the combination of bacteria and yeasts than, and other microbes that live in the intestine. And those in turn affect general health 
and they affect the availability of calories from the food that we eat, not just when we're breastfeeding, but for the rest of your life. Because the microbiome you grow up with is the one that then becomes fixed in your intestines for most of your adult life until you enter into your seventh decade, and then it can begin to change a bit. And so the argument is that if you're having food that's not in oversupply, it's quite easy with a bottle feed to oversupply calories. And also it's food that's provided when the baby wants it rather than when the parent wants to make the food and then just force a certain amount into the baby. And then you're selecting for the right microbes in the intestine, which will then have a lifetime of benefits. There, there may be a, a range of factors going on that all add up to a likelihood of having a more normal weight in adulthood. Although there are so many other driving factors that increase the prospects of becoming obese as we're seeing all around the world with half the world population either overweight or obese now or, or higher that um, probably this is one contributor to the problem it's not the only contributor to, to a lack of breastfeeding to the problem of obesity there's a, a range of factors that are at play here assuming a frictionless environment would an endless domino set fall infinitely well, the best way of thinking about this is what would happen in space. If I had dominoes in space and no force was acting on them, Isaac Newton's first law, nothing moves unless some force acts on it. And if there's no net force on your dominoes, then they're all going to stand there next to each other, hovering in space where there's nothing else for them to bash into. If you then toppled the first domino by giving it a push obviously it wouldn't fall and then stop moving it would keep moving but it would then hit the next one hit the next one and you would have uh, an an infinite thing because there'd be all of them would transfer the energy between themselves with no losses to the environment in the same way so you could have a, a, a very long chain of dominoes in space and in theory as long as you were really really accurate with how you managed to get them to start moving then the dominoes should continue to go into each other like a long newton's cradle for a very long time indeed. I'm sure it would be very difficult to do the experiment perfectly, but in theory, with no losses, they should continue to fall, as in fall in space in so much as they can. So, so can I assume that a frictionless environment is only a vacuum? Well, what causes friction? Friction is when one thing rubs on another. So I could have a glass tube with a vacuum inside and put something in it but as I turned the tube over and the thing slid down the side inside the tube there's still friction because they're touching the side of the glass and that would rub on the material inside or whatever's falling in the glass tube and that would make some sound it would make some heat and therefore you would lose energy that way so the only way to be genuinely frictionless is as I say to to do it in space because then there are very few atoms probably about one atom or molecule per cubic meter for the things to bash into and they're not being um, pulled down onto a surface that they can rub against by a gravity that's not affecting all of them equally. Okay, so let, let's go to the, the voice notes. Quite a couple there, Joe. Fire. Good morning, Clarence, and to Dr. Smith. Yes, uh, it's Flores here from Worcester, and happy 26th birthday for this month. Clarence, I would like to ask the good scientist there, how does dog ears really get measured? I really love my dogs, but sometimes you don't really know how old they are. I have a miniature uh, Doberman Pinscher. She's eight years old, but she's still doing the very same things that she did a year, uh, 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 um, seven years ago. She can still jump high over fences and... The only thing that shows that she's getting older is the gray hair sticking oh. out and also her teeth getting a little bit stomped. Yeah. Stomp. Okay, so how does you exactly measure your dog's 
Age. Have a good job, Marley. I want to know the answer too, Doctor Christmas. Are you a are you a dog man? You are you are a dog man, aren't you? Big dog man. Yeah, I thought so. Um, the answer is that when we come up with this dog years of seven human years, really what someone did was to say, well, how long does a dog live? Well, most dogs live between 10 and 12 years if they're a big dog. A smaller dogs might go on a bit longer. How long does a human live? Well, into their mid-70s, 80, something like that. So therefore, if you work it out, it's roughly seven years for each year of a dog's life is the equivalent of a human lifespan. So that's sort of how they arrived at the seven years is the, the uh, average year for, a, for a, a human, for a dog equivalent. But dogs have a much higher metabolic rate than we do. And smaller animals in general have higher metabolic rates than bigger ones. And the higher your metabolic rate, the more damage you're doing to your body. It's a bit like if you have a small engine in a car, and to move that car around, that small engine has to thrum away at ear bleedingly high revs and volumes. It's working much harder than if you had a very big, slow turning engine that would just thump away all day to move that big truck around. And in the course, therefore, of having a higher metabolic rate, your animals, your pets, tend to do more damage to themselves metabolically because a product of metabolism, as well as the energy that keeps us going, is free radicals and other things that oxidize and damage your tissues and the more of those you make the faster you burn out your body so that's why there is this general trend that smaller animals warmer blooded animals that have a, a higher metabolic rate tend to live less long than bigger animals that may be warm-blooded or, or animals that are cold-blooded and so dogs are, are sort of intermediate there they're not the smallest they're not like a mouse which lives for a, a year or two they're not like an elephant that can live 100 years and has a lower metabolic rate they are down there in the middle somewhere which is why it works out at roughly they get to about 10 before the the tissues begin to suffer the effects of that enhanced metabolic rate and, uh, and faster rate at which they produce and burn energy Let's go to yeah another voice note, Joe. Let's take a listen. Good morning, Dr. Chris. It's Joel speaking. What is it about our brains and the wiring of our brains that makes us look at something that someone warns us not to look at? For instance, <laughs> my husband and I love watching these funny videos, Fail Armies on YouTube. And whenever there's a, a, a scene where someone is holding a tarantula, he always says to me, don't look at the tarantula on the TV. And I look, <laughs> what is it that makes us look at something that we're not supposed to look at? Jill, know, can you explain that? It's rebelliousness, Jill. Um, it's the fact that as a GP I once worked with showed me there's this very powerful effect of reverse psychology. And it's a bit like you say to someone, don't look down. And what do we do? You immediately look down. And if I said to you, don't think about kangaroos, what goes leaping through your imagination the minute I say, don't do that, the opposite. And I think it's because our brains are basically um, appraising themselves of what's going on around the world. And in order to not be surprised by something, we have to build an anticipation that we're going to see that thing. And we plan for the future that way. So we appraise ourselves of as much information as we can by studying what's going on around us. And if someone gives you an instruction, although they're saying don't do that, actually what they are saying is that you could do that. And so your brain thinks, well, just in case I do have to do that, I'm going to make a plan on the off chance. And of course, that involves looking down or looking at the telly or doing the very thing just to see what it might be like. And I think that's human nature. Another voice note. Hi, good morning to all and sundry. I have tuned in a bit late. I've just got in the car now. Um, 
Is there still a possibility of getting a question in? Um, what is the opinion, the expert opinion on intermittent fasting? If you do a bit of research, you find so many different opinions about that. If the naked scientist, thank you very much, uh, might have an opinion on it. Thank you very much, Dion, here. Yeah. Thank you, Dion. Hi, Dion. I spoke to Michael Mosley about this when um, I saw him because he had a go at this and he said he, he did lose quite a bit of weight doing this. What is difficult in order to dis to sort of disentangle is do you lose weight? Because when you subscribe to a diet regime like fasting, is it because you exert more self-control? Because you are watching what you eat and when you eat it and you're saying, no, I'm absolutely not going to have anything to eat between this time and this time. There's less temptation and there's less ability to deceive yourself that you have only had one biscuit not a packet of biscuits and so it's probable that, that while there may be some impacts on your metabolism and it may be that you're you're able to uh, in some way guide your body to become more efficient with its calories what you're actually doing is watching what you eat and controlling what you eat better when it's an all or none thing because what we're terrible at doing is saying well I haven't had I haven't really eaten that much and the, and we deceive ourselves about how much we've really taken into our bodies whereas it's much harder to do that when you either have or haven't eaten something and so I think one argument for this is that it's just calorie control and self control and the other possibility is that it it does mean that when you eat you tend to eat rather than eating a massive great portion and then eating another massive portion later on in the day. It may well be that because you eat one lot of calories once, it overall adds up to fewer calories in total. But at the moment, the jury's out on whether or not any of these diets really, really work and whether it's just a, a self-control thing and, and the fact that the modern world we have created is very good at subverting our senses into force-feeding us too much. And as one person I spoke to recently put it, if you look at, say, a packet of cereal, that the, the cereal is so tasty and it contains half a day's calories in, in, in what you can put into a cereal bowl. It's so easy because most of the work has been done chewing that up by the company that made it so that you just put it in your mouth that you end up overloading on calories without even realising it. So I think it's a combination of factors, but really the self-control is a massive element of, of how some of these diets work. This is more of a statement rather than a question. It reads, if you go away for an hour... For a dog, it feels like all day. If you go away for a day, for a dog, it feels like a week. That's why they get so excited when, when you come back. I, I think by implication, that means that they sleep for a week every day as well. Is there any sense to that uh, statement, Doc? Well, it's difficult to ask dogs, or any animal for that matter, apart from a human, about their experience of time. You can do indirect experiments, can't you, and see how excited your dog is when you've been away for a minute versus been away for an hour. But our best evidence on how this works comes from human studies. And it seems that our interpretation and perception of time is to do with how rich our memory record is for the events that have happened. And we go through life through the day laying down a certain set of memories at a certain rate. But when certain things happen to us, like something particularly exciting or scary, we tend to enrich the memory record for that particular event. And so when the brain works out how long that event lasted, it says, well, hang on, there's loads and loads of memories for that. So therefore, it must have taken forever. But we know it didn't take forever. So therefore, time must have slowed down. So our brain has a perception of time 
biased by how rich the memory record is, which is why something happens in slow motion when you're about to drive your car into another car or something horrible is about to happen or things go really, really fast when you're excited because when you're thinking back, you're then revisiting a lot of memories that you made over time very quickly and so you you have a distorted sense of time so the one thing that we all agree on in this is that our perception of time is not fixed and we're not very good at judging time because it's strongly biased by the experiences we're having at the time and i guess I, you've also explained why the time that we have with you goes so very quickly well that's kind of reassuring this- isn't it because on the other hand if it did drag then um we'd not be a good listen I can't believe it's 9.58 uh, and we're going to have to go to news. But a big thank you for the Naked Scientist every Friday just after 9.30 right here on Views and News. Neuer Job, neues Glück? Starte jetzt als Fahrerin bei Lieferando durch. Mit einem Vertrag ganz nach deinem Geschmack. Entdecke deine Stadt, sichere dir ein geregeltes Einkommen und eine Work-Life-Balance, die zu dir passt. Na, bereit abzuliefern? Dann bewirb dich jetzt online. Hör ich da Lieferando.